Greetings all and welcome back to the Untold Tudor History Podcast, Episode 3, The Lord Protector. In this third full episode, we're going to delve into some of the early priorities and concerns for the king and his council as they settle into the first year of a brand new Tudor reign. When we last left King Edward VI, he had just been coronated. As we know, the boy king kept a diary, but it wasn't exactly Adrian Mole or even Samuel Pepys. No, it was extremely dry and revealed little of his emotions. Of the day of the coronation ceremony that made him king, his diary entry noted only that he sat next to his uncle Edward and Archbishop Cranmer with the crown on his head. As Edward settled into the reality of his new life as King of England, he and his council had a number of pressing issues to contend with. Edward Seymour stood supreme as Lord Protector, anyone doubting his supremacy, either having been convinced that he was the best man for the job, or bought off with lands and titles. The Imperial Ambassador Francois van der Delft, who had held the position since 1545, noted that in the early days of the new reign, Somerset governed everything absolutely, though he did note that there was potential for future conflicts between the Protector and John Dudley. However, it was not Dudley that stood as his chief rival at the time, but the Lord Chancellor, Thomas Risley, newly created Earl of Southampton, a new title. One of the actions Risley is best remembered for these days is the torture of Anne Askew, who he had racked in the Tower of London in 1546 for her evangelical beliefs, as England looked to halt religious reform as it sought warmer relations with Spain and its king, the Roman Catholic Emperor Charles V. Along with Richard Rich, who would succeed him as Chancellor, he physically turned the wheels on the rack during Askew's torture. She would ultimately be burnt at the stake, alongside three other reformers, and such are the complications of the English Reformation. There is no linear progression from Catholicism to Protestantism, most certainly not during Henry VIII's reign. The king who broke from Rome, as we have previously discussed, was a Catholic at heart. His ministers and council trod a fine line along with the king, with traditional faith on one side and reform on the other. It was only with the accession of Edward, who had been tutored by staunch reformists, that religion in England shifted decisively towards Protestantism. Edward Seymour may have assumed near absolute power, but there were still those on the council that did not approve of this unchecked status. Thomas Risley, despite having been bought off with the title of Earl of Southampton, was perhaps chief among them. Bishop Stephen Gardner was another. Gardiner, as a Catholic, was determined to resist the religious reforms that Somerset was keen to introduce. His feelings were shared by the Earl of Arundel, Henry Fitzalan, who held the position of Lord Chamberlain. Let's start with Risley, a well-educated, capable man now 42 years old and risen to great heights during the reign of King Henry. In 1547, he had been married for 14 years and had three sons and five daughters. Two of the sons, however, unfortunately died in infancy. At present, Risley held the coveted position of Lord Chancellor, which made him Keeper of the Great Seal of the King, 
which was affixed to documents to symbolise the monarch's approval. In the great title grab that followed Henry's death, Risley had become Earl of Southampton. Outwardly a religious conservative, Southampton had been present and indeed taken a hands-on role in the racking of Protestant preacher Anne Askew, along with Richard Rich in the Tower of London, after the constable of the Tower had refused to inflict this torture on a woman. Despite his religious sensibilities, he had benefited greatly from the disillusion of the monasteries in the previous reign. Some would argue that Risley's religious beliefs were balanced with the potential for wealth that they enabled. He was essentially the one man on the council that openly opposed Edward Seymour's elevation to the post of Lord Protector. He had earned so much trust and influence with the late king that perhaps he was loath to lose it now with the accession of Edward. We may recall his tears when announcing Henry's death to Parliament in February of 1547. Although not on the council, Stephen Gardiner was becoming another opponent of Seymour, one that had once been his close friend, yet was to turn against him for largely religious reasons. The Bishop of Winchester had, to his frustration, been excluded from the King's will as an executor and member of the Regency Council. Despite his relationship and influence with the monarch, Henry had believed that he was too stubborn to be controlled by the others. Gardiner was to spend the first year of the new reign writing to Somerset, opposing the religious reforms that he, Archbishop Cranmer and the rest of the council were determined to push forward with. Though his correspondence began on a friendly note, he was adamant that religion should remain unchanged until the king came of age. When this did not happen, he grew more aggravated over time as reforms passed that he could not countenance. He would be punished for this obstinance one year into Edward's reign, with imprisonment in the Tower of London, where he would remain until the king's death in 1553. Seymour's third opponent of notes was the Earl of Arundel, Henry Fitzalan. The Earl was just 35 years of age in 1547, but had amassed some considerable experience. He had been present at the trials of Anne Boleyn and Lord Rochford, her brother, and also served as Warden of Calais from 1540 to 1543, returning on his father's death that year to claim the earldom for himself. Henry's will gave him a place on the Regency Council. Arundel had played the role of Chief Butler at Edward's coronation, which, while it may sound like a rather humble post, was in fact a great honour, bestowed upon the nobleman of the land with the oldest lineage. In addition to honour, Arundel was also allowed to keep all of the leftover wine from the festivities for himself. Lucky him. The latter two of these opponents to the Protectorate were troublesome enough, but as Keeper of the Great Seal, Risley had real power, and rather too much of it for Somerset's taste. Something would have to be done. It was a lapse of judgement and a certain presumption rather than any serious wrongdoing on Risley's part, that opened an opportunity for Somerset to dispatch his political rival. Shortly before the coronation, Risley had delegated legal duties to civil lawyers without the King's warrant and without consulting the rest of the council. He had done so in order to reduce the burdens of his legal matters as Lord Chancellor, and gain more time to devote to council matters. A small crime indeed, but a deviation from the rigid formal procedures of the age. It was enough for Somerset to move against his rival. 
Risley was removed from the Chancellorship and the Council, choosing to go quietly rather than create divisions in the realm, as he put it. Thomas Seymour was one of three men sent to the former Chancellor's home to collect the Great Seal from him. The younger Seymour, ever brasher than Edward, called for Risley to be thrown into the tower, but Somerset did not agree and allowed his defeated rival to remain at home. The seized Great Seal of the King was then given to William Paulette, another counsellor, and one, for the time being, not minded to cause trouble for the Protector. With this key rival gone, Somerset was able to seize even greater powers as Lord Protector than Risley would have allowed. He began to do so just a week later. Crucially, King Edward acceded to and signed the terms of a commission presented by the council that allowed them to legally act as his government in domestic and foreign affairs. The commission also made Somerset's position as protector formal and legal. And another important aspect was that it granted the council legal immunity for the future actions they would take before Edward came of age and began to rule in his own right, which must indeed have been a great comfort. Maybe the most important power enabled in the new commission was that which granted Somerset the power to appoint new councillors as he wished, and to consult on important matters with those that he chose rather than the entire council, as Henry VIII had intended. In fact, this was blatantly against the terms set out in the late king's will regarding the council, which was ultimately that no one man would have power over the rest. Well, that could hardly have been more thoroughly ignored. By March 1547, Edward Seymour, the Duke of Somerset, was king in all but name. As William Paget, who had supported him from the start to be protector, put it, saving for the name of a king, and that you must do all things in the name of another, your grace is during the king's majesty's young age of imperfection to do his own thing as it were a king, and have his majesty's absolute power. Now to use it, and indeed to start acting like a king, from this point, Somerset began to have two ceremonial maces carried before him, as would a king. He also addressed the French king, Francis I, as brother in a letter, which was a show of equal status fit only for a true monarch. This terminology earned a rebuke from Francis, who reminded the Lord Protector that he was no king. Nevertheless, Seymour increased his annual financial allowance to 8,000 marks, something on a par with 1.6 million per year in today's money. He also had his coat of arms changed to be more regal, in that they more closely resembled those of his late sister, the former Queen Jane. In a prayer written to mark his accession to the Protectorate, Seymour seemingly regarded his responsibilities and status as similar to those of a true monarch. It read, Thou Lord, by thy provenance hast made me to rule, Govern me, Lord, as I shall govern. Rule me as I shall rule. Give me power, Lord, to suppress with whom thou wilt have obey. I am by the appointment, my minister for thy king, a shepherd for thy people, a sword-bearer for justice. In the early days of the Protectorate, Somerset's fellow councillors warned against radical religious reform and war. Bishop Gardiner in particular calling for calm and temperance in the years of Edward VI's minority. Yet despite the reservations some had for pushing forward with religious reform, the wheels had certainly been set in motion in the previous reign. Somerset knew this and made the point in advocating his own reforms. 
This was made easier by the fact that the king was to become a staunch reformist himself. His tutors, chosen by his father, were of the new faith, and to encourage the prince and later king along the same lines. In 1543, at the age of six, Edward's life had changed considerably. Gone was his carefree boyhood, and he was sent to Hampton Court, where his new household was established. The female nurses he had been used to as an infant were dismissed, and replaced with an all-male staff as part of the road towards making him a man and a future king. The Bishop of Ely, Richard Cox, was appointed Edward's almoner and tutor, with the younger scholar John Cheek acting as his deputy, responsible for languages, scripture, philosophy and all liberal sciences. The pair joined Roger Ascham, Edward's calligraphy teacher. Cox was known as a disciplinarian. He did not spare his charge just because of his regal status. Edward was joined in his lessons by the young children of the nobility, encouraged to form relationships with the men that would later serve him as dukes and lords. This included Charles Brandon, Duke of Suffolk, the son of Henry VIII's close friend and brother-in-law, another Charles Brandon, who had married the king's sister Mary. Charles's younger brother Henry also shared lessons with Prince Edward. The prince's closest friend, however, was Barnaby Fitzpatrick, the son of a lord, who was his claim took beatings from the masters in place of the prince when Edward misbehaved, with Cox supposedly not wishing to lay a hand on their future monarch. This, however, is contradicted by Cox's own assertions that he did indeed beat Edward when he misbehaved badly. Between the influence of his tutors, his stepmother Catherine Parr, and his own readings, the future king grew into a staunch reformist, and was prepared to go far further than his father down the road to what would become known as Protestantism. His Regency Council knew it, and with the traditionalist Catholics largely cleansed from its ranks, there was little obstacle to its leaders setting the wheels in motion to change the face of England forever. Somerset's own religion has been the subject of some debate. He was, however, known to have patronised Protestant ministers, and his group of players performed plays with reformist messages. His second wife, Anne Stanhope, is said to have influenced him towards a more reformist path. Henry VIII's path to religious reform had been inconsistent, lurching forward at times and then taking steps back towards traditionalism at other times in the latter years of his reign. The moderate reforms of the Ten Articles Act of 1536, some of the wording of which contained cautious encouragement to the evangelicals, had been tempered by the Six Articles of 1539, which reinforced traditional Catholic doctrine. Both acts, however, asserted the truth of transubstantiation and literal presence of the blood and body of Christ in the Eucharist. In 1546, the king, in the last year of his life, had moved to order the abandonment of several Catholic practices, including bell ringing at Halloween, covering of images during Lent, and the Good Friday creeping to the cross ceremony. However, he had a change of heart and never signed off on this policy. These practices remained to his death, Yet the fire of reform had been lit with the break from Rome, and many in England were ready for change. Henry's death had removed a major obstacle, and the evangelicals or reformists sensed that the new reign would bear fruit for their ambitions. 
Evangelical preachers, by which we should say those that believed in redemption through faith alone, as opposed to Catholic doctrines, felt emboldened to attack Catholic practices like the sacrament, which included the Eucharist and penance. To such men, the new king was a second Josiah that would cleanse the realm of idolatry. Somerset and his allies on the council knew that they could rely on the support of young Edward in pushing through religious reform, for his beliefs, however strapped by his youth, aligned with their own. Lent 1547 saw bishops Nicholas Ridley and William Barlow preaching against idolatrous images and fasting during Lent. A high-profile Catholic preacher, Dr Richard Smith, Regis Professor of Divinity at Oxford, also recanted his Catholic beliefs in May 1547, burning the books that he had published just months before as a papist. Seeing the direction in which the wind was blowing, many Catholics left England for France or Italy. One preacher took the more radical action of hurling himself from the steeple of St Magnus's church into the Thames, drowning soon after. A soldier at heart, Somerset had been shown to favour the redistribution of the church's wealth towards the protection of the realm. In 1545, when Paget had written to him requesting his opinion of taking gold and silver plate from churches, Seymour had been enthusiastic about the plan. He replied to Paget that such wealth was better deployed for the wheel and defence of the realm. To him, wealth and symbolism was not necessary for devotion to and worship of God. The Catholics had good reason to have deep misgivings about the new regime. Under the instruction of Archbishop Cranmer and the Council, a team of 30 religious commissioners were appointed, and in the summer set about patrolling the realm, enforcing injunctions that mandated the removal of Catholic symbolism from churches. During this time, the use of rosary beads was condemned outright, and practices including parish processions, the ringing of bells, Offering of money to relics and the use of candles in almost all ceremonies were now prohibited, though the candles remained on the altar. In the transition to a more simplistic form of worship that valued practical faith through understanding of the Bible, a great deal of ornate stained glass windows and other symbols like statues that contained abused images such as Catholic saints were removed and destroyed by order of the commissioners. The high cost of replacing windows saved some, however in the more reformist cities like Norwich in the east of England, churches paid to do as their sovereign and the injunctions in his name wished. In some cases the injunctions added rather than took away. For example, injunction 24 required that all parishioners help keep the Sabbath day holy by attending church, taking part in the communion while abstaining from drunkenness, quarrelling and brawling. This particular new regulation was intended to increase religious knowledge of the layperson by increased attendance and temperance. Further to that end, each parish church now had to have a copy of the Bible in English, which was provided to them, and the Ten Commandments were to be read in English during services rather than Latin, so that people could learn them off by heart. On top of this, sermons were to be preached by clergymen four times per year against the Pope, now styled in England as the Bishop of Rome. Parishes were expected to report on their progress in adopting the changes to the government and the commissioners. 
it is noteworthy that in the ranks of these commissioners were men that had been marginalised and disgraced for their extreme evangelical and reformist beliefs in King Henry's reign. Now front and centre of the Reformation, their presence in the mainstream symbolised the acceleration of religious reform under Edward. Imperial Ambassador van der Delft reported to his master that the king himself heard daily sermons from several evangelical preachers, who to his mind competed with each other to see who could most strongly abuse the old Catholic religion. The religious times were certainly changing, however, all did not go swimmingly. As the summer waned, the council became bogged down in disputes as to what constituted abusive religious images. Religion was a highly sensitive subject for the realm, and they did not wish to inflame unnecessary anger. Thus, if a church could argue that the images, such as statues, were not abusive, as they were not given offerings or prayers during services, they were allowed to remain, and it was suggested that the icons should be returned to their churches if they had already been taken away. By this time, the Lord Protector was absent, having headed north to engage in hostilities with the Scots once again. Without Somerset at its helm, the Privy Council seemed rudderless and unsure of how to proceed. Religious matters reached an impasse. As for what Somerset was doing in Scotland, well, his plan was an ambitious one. He sought no less than to forcibly bring the Northern Realm into political union with England, and had spent the summer planning an offensive strategy. In the last years of Henry VIII's reign, the English had sought to achieve this lofty ambition through aggressive diplomacy. Prince Edward was to be betrothed to the even younger Mary, Queen of Scots, who had reigned since she was less than a week old on the death of James V of Scotland, Henry VIII's nephew through his sister Margaret Tudor, who had been married into the Scottish royal family. James had died broken by the defeat of the Scots at Solway Moss in 1542, this battle resulted from the staunchly Catholic King of Scots' refusal to break from Rome as had his uncle the English King, and Scottish raids into England. It was a messy engagement fought between the rivers Esk and Lyne. The unwell James had not taken part in the battle personally, remaining at nearby Loch Maben, where he was to learn of a rout of his army under the command of two rival generals, the Lords Maxwell and Sinclair. Struck both with fever and melancholy at the nature of the defeat, James died soon after, leaving his extremely young daughter Mary to succeed him as queen. This chastening defeat for the Scots was followed by what became known as the rough wooing. The English saw the infant Mary as the ideal future bride for Prince Edward, then just five years old. The English ambassador to Scotland, Sir Rafe Sadler, had visited Scotland in March 1543 and seen the tiny queen with his own eyes, reporting to his master that she was as goodly a child as I have seen of her age. His opposite number had done the same in the reverse direction and reported equally positively on her potential husband. High praise all round. With Mary's governor, the Earl of Arran, keen on the match, it seemed like a done deal. Yet Tudor diplomacy had a habit of becoming complicated. The King of England's demands were great. He insisted that Mary should be brought to England within two years to learn the ways of the land and be brought up in an English environment, adding that he looked on the girl as his own daughter. She was in fact his great niece, but the sentiment was there. 
The Scots thought that these terms were unfair, but eventually reached agreement with the English and signed off on the treaty, which included peace between the nations, at Greenwich in July 1543. But, as we know, union between the crowns of England and Scotland was not to come for another 60 years after the time of the Tudors was over. So what went wrong? In short, the Scottish had second thoughts, and by December, its Parliament had declared the English treaty null and void, instead renewing their old alliance with the French against their common foe. Needless to say, Henry VIII did not react well to this. Never a moderate man, he ordered the burning and ransack of Edinburgh, commanding Somerset, then merely the Earl of Hertford, that it be so raised and defaced when you have sacked and gotten what ye can of it, as there may remain forever a perpetual memory of the vengeance of God lightened upon them for their falsehood and disloyalty. He also intended to force the Scots to hand over his son's intended bride. Thus began what would become known centuries later as the rough wooing. Ambassador Sadler would say years later that the Scottish nobility had never been keen on the Treaty of Greenwich. He said that the Scottish diplomat Adam Otterburn had told him that although the Regent Arran and the other nobles had agreed to it, the people of Scotland as a whole were strongly against the muted marriage and treaty with England. Our nation will never agree to have an Englishman King of Scotland, Otterburn told Sadler. As to why the Scots then signed the treaty in the first place, we may consider the weakness of their military position after the massive defeat at Solway Moss. Perhaps they acquiesced to English demands to buy time while they recovered their force, and perhaps they had received promises from the French between the signing and breaking of the treaty in July and December 1543, respectively. We cannot be certain. What is more concrete is what happened to Edinburgh in May 1544. The English army, led by Edward Seymour and John Dudley, then called Hertford and Lyle, burned the Scottish capital under defensive fire from Edinburgh Castle. Though Otterburn had attempted to parley with Seymour and give up the keys to the city with conditions, Hertford was not authorised to negotiate. The English, supported by a naval fleet, set fire to houses and looted the city. In the aftermath, Hertford wrote to King Henry, reporting how the English then stood upon a hill outside Edinburgh and watched it burn while the townspeople wailed. As the forces returned south, they left a trail of destruction in their wake to punctuate their message that the breaking of the Treaty of Greenwich would not be easily forgiven. Fast forward just over three years and the English remained at war with the Scots. The English raids and the sacking of Edinburgh might have been grand gestures at the time, but the problem for the English was that after they left, the Scots could simply regroup and rebuild their strength. The distance between the English centre of power and that of Scotland meant that English victories achieved in Henry's reign were but temporary, certainly not bringing the northern neighbour to heel. Somerset advocated leaving military garrisons in Scotland to solve that problem. However, financial considerations meant that this plan had yet to transpire at the dawn of the new reign. The English also had suffered defeat at Ancrum Moor in another battle with the Scots that Somerset did not command, losing 1,800 men, 800 killed and a further 1,000 taken prisoner. 
It was time to end the scraps once and for all with a decisive victory, both in battle and politically, with Queen Mary claimed as a bride. Thus, in the late summer of the first year of King Edward VI's rule, Edward Seymour found himself marching north once again in the latest bid to subdue the Scots. The English hand was forced by the death of the French King Francis, who had narrowly outlived his English counterpart and longtime rival Henry. Francis had died in late March of 1547, leaving a young but full-grown heir in his place in Henry II. The staunchly Catholic Francis had his own aspirations. In Scotland, Mary of Guise, the widow of Mary Queen of Scots' father, James V, was naturally a powerful figure, and she sought closer union with her homeland France, uniting against English interests. Indeed, she also sought to become regent herself. For his part, Somerset literally dreamed of triumph against the Scots. He remembered a dream he had had in Henry VIII's reign, where he had returned triumphant to his master and former brother-in-law after total victory, then waking to realise he had achieved no such thing. Now Lord Protector, in 1547, he intended to make those dreams a reality, setting out north in late summer, accompanied by an army of 16,000 men, to finally win the northern country on his nephew's behalf. The battle that would ultimately ensue was significant for more than one reason. Firstly, it marked a crossover point from ancient warfare into modern in England. Accompanying the English troops were European mercenaries, armed with the arquebus, a long gun mounted on the shoulder that would accompany the more traditional pikes and longbows. Second, the battle would be historic in that it was to be the last major battle fought between England and Scotland to this very day. The Scots amassed a force superior in numbers to that of England. Estimates place it at between 22,000 and 25,000 men, composed largely of pikemen and archers. Yet the English were supported by around 30 ships that followed the army along the coast, supplying food and munitions on the march north. A portion of the English army reached and occupied Falside Hill, southwest of Edinburgh, on the 9th of September 1547. Old chivalric customs dictated that the defending army challenged a cavalry fight between 1,500 of their men and 1,500 of the English. Seymour was a pragmatic man and likely thought it a foolish waste of time and resources, yet he permitted Henry Grey, the High Marshal of the English army who was in charge of the cavalry, to engage the equal number of Scots led by the Earl of Home. The English cavalry enjoyed far greater experience than the Scots, and Grey's force soundly defeated the earls, who fled severely cut up. Regent Arran had lost a large proportion of his cavalry before the main battle had even begun. Grey returned to the English forces triumphant, but the coming fight would have major consequences for him. The same day, Somerset advanced some of his troops to the Inveresque slopes on the banks of the River Esk, from where he could see the Scottish force occupying a camp a mile square an excellent defensive position on the other side of the river. The English set up guns at this point and camped for the final night near Preston Pans on the coast, about two miles from the Scots. Search for the Royal Musselburgh Golf Course on your map software of choice for a good idea of the location. 
During the night, Somerset received communication from his opposite number Aaron, firstly challenging him to single combat to decide the battle, and then that 20 champions from each side should fight for the outcome. The Lord Protector, naturally, refused both offers. He would awake the next morning to face the Scots' army in full in what would become known as the Battle of Pinky Clue. I leave you on a cliffhanger. Next time we shall discuss how the battle went. Until then, as usual, thanks very much for listening. Stay well and talk to you soon. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider giving us a follow for extra Tudor content on Instagram at Untold Tudor History. Thank you.